In last week's installment, we learned that Jonah finally made it to Nineveh. He gave God's message of judgment and the people all repented. Because of that, chapter 3 ends with the fact that God relented and didn't bring on them this destruction he had threatened, which leads us into our today's reading, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then, <clears throat> then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for our brother Ian and pray a fresh anointing of your spirit on him now as he opens your word to us. Amen. Amen. Before I talk about Jonah, I just want to mention I've got the bookstore with me at the back there. Don't laugh. It's very serious. And I've got some new books, including something you may be interested in, uh, Ruth Valerio's book, Saying Yes to Life, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book, reflecting on the environment as we work through Lent. So I've got three copies of that. Do come and grab me afterwards. This is the point where I realize on the clicker I don't know which is forward and which is back. Ah, the right answer. I hope you have enjoyed this romp through Jonah. Have you enjoyed it? 
Some have. <laughs> I hope you have. It is a great fun story, isn't it? And it's really clear that previous generations have also enjoyed it, previous generations in the faith. This is an illustration from a window in Canterbury Cathedral, which was installed in the year 1201. So I think they obviously enjoyed the humor of Jonah. I like the way that the sailors, they've cut out the middleman of the sea. Rather than just throw Jonah into the sea, the sailors are carefully inserting Jonah into the mouth of the great fish or the whale or whatever it is. The story of Jonah has long been a favorite of Christians down the ages, and not just for Sunday school storytelling as well. If you visit Rome, anybody been to Rome and visited the catacombs there? One or two? Did you know that? The story of Jonah is the most common singular illustration in the catacombs. So even in those early centuries, Christians loved this story. Now, of course, we may think that the reason for that is because of the serious theological illustration that it bears. When Jesus says, I will only give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the belly of the ground. Yes, it could be the early Christians were full of theological seriousness. I suspect they just really enjoyed a good story. Have you enjoyed the puns and the wordplay? Have you noticed that at the beginning of the story, when Jonah runs away from God, he goes down to Joppa? If you go to Israel and you're traveling from Jerusalem or the hill country, you do indeed need to go down because Joppa is by the sea. But when he gets to Joppa, he goes down to the harbor. When he gets to the harbor, he goes down to a boat. When he gets in the boat in the storm, he goes down into the bottom of the boat to sleep. And when the sailors fish him out from there, sorry, pun not intended, uh, he then is thrown down into the depths of the sea, and in the depths of the sea, he goes down into the fish. It's all downhill, we might say, until God's deliverance when he comes up and up and up and heads up to Nineveh. Did you enjoy the mention of a great big storm? And then there comes a great big fish. And then Jonah ends up in a great big city of Nineveh. Although the story seems a little confused, apparently it takes three days to walk across it, but there's only 120,000 people living there, which means they must have jolly big gardens. I used to live in Poole, which is a population of 120,000, and let me tell you, it did not take three days to walk across it. And I don't know if you noticed the little pun last week where Jonah prophesies that in 40 days... Nineveh will be overturned. What he means by that is it'll be destroyed. But of course, the other meaning for overturning, turning upside down, is inverting Nineveh's values and beliefs. Indeed, it is overturned in repentance. I wonder if we sometimes take this story a little bit too seriously. There's another illustration I rather like. This is from a medieval church in Sweden. I don't know how clearly you can see it, but uh, it tries to encapsulate sort of different phases of the story in one illustration. On the right-hand side, you can see that's a pretty nasty-looking fish there, baring its teeth, ready to chomp Jonah. On the left, you've got the, the fish having spat Jonah out. Not only has he lost his clothes, he's also lost his hair and his beard. That was a serious, worrying three days. 
we do take this story seriously. And I think sometimes we pass over, to be honest, what looks like the impossibility of the story. Augustine, St. Augustine, took it very seriously indeed. And he said, if you don't believe this miracle of the fish swallowing Jonah, well, you won't believe any miracles. And you're worse than an unbeliever. Come on, Augustine, what happened to your good sense of humor? I remember reading somebody who once said, if I, asked, I would still believe the story if it was Jonah who'd swallowed the whale. My choice of accents there, purely coincidental. Jesus used comic humor. Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. I remember reading it as a teenager in the Living Bible where this servant owed his master a million dollars. And then he meets his fellow servant who only owed him five bucks and he beats him up, even though he's been forgiven his huge debt. In Luke's gospel, we hear about a shepherd who abandons 99 sheep and leaves them unprotected to go and protect, go and rescue the one who's wandered off. Never mind, the wolves going, well, let's take one away, the shepherd will go off, and we'll have the 99 all for ourselves. Silly old shepherd. Jesus using comic humor, using, if you like, painting a, a cartoon of life to tell us the real truth. And cartoons can often do that. That's why I love newspaper cartoons. I particularly like Peter Brooks in The Times. Cartoons look ridiculous. They might make us laugh, but as we laugh, the truth comes home. Sometimes painful truths which are difficult to say in straight terms, are actually possible to say through comedy and through humor. And I've been reflecting on Jonah. It struck me that this story is just a bit ridiculous. I'm just using some cartoons here from the Bible Project video. If you don't know the Bible Project, do have a look at it. They have videos and they also have supporting uh, posters and things that you can take away. It is ridiculous. It's ridiculous that a prophet like Jonah should hear the word of God and then turn and run away and do the opposite. Run in the opposite direction. That sort of thing would never happen, wouldn't it? How absurd. That would be a bit like suggesting that people could come and sit in church week by week, hear the scriptures read and expounded, and then just leave the door and carry on with their lives as if nothing had happened. As if we could do this and hear the urgency of God's compassion for his world, and then just leave and carry on with, with our business day to day without a burning sense of urgency to share the good news of God's love. How ridiculous! I can't imagine that happening, can you? How ridiculous that these pagan sailors should show more respect than Jonah. Each of them prays to their own little tin pot God. And then they say to Jonah, well, who do you worship? Where is your little wooden idol or your uh, thing you wear around your neck or your lucky charm? Jonah says, I don't have one of those. I worship the Lord God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one who sent this storm. The sailors are going, well, if your God sent this storm, why aren't you praying to him? And in the end, the sailors turn and worship Jonah's God when Jonah won't. How ridiculous. 
Because, of course, we know that God only likes respectable religious people, preferably people who've grown up in respectable Christian homes. God doesn't want any old riffraff coming into church, does he? How absurd to suggest so. How absurd to suggest that these sailors of all people, you know what sailors are like, they've got a reputation, that they would turn to God. You'd almost think that the grace of God would extend to all nations and all peoples rather than just sticking with a safe ethnic group. How ridiculous that God should hear Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. I rather like that depiction because there isn't actually that much room in the belly of a fish. So Jonah is forced to adapt, adopt a sort of, you know, huddled prayer posture. How ridiculous that God should hear Jonah's prayer, which even though it sounds good and pious, when we were thinking about chapter 2, did you notice the parallel with the Psalms? Did you also notice that Jonah never actually says sorry? Sounds pretty important to me. And actually rather ridiculous when you think about it, that Jesus should use the sign of Jonah as a pointer to himself. After all, God's response to Jonah's prayer was to make the fish sick. As it says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Is that really how we should think of the resurrection? Death was fed up with Jesus and vomited him back to life. Rather strange. How ridiculous that Jonah's preaching should be so poor. We might expect a little bit of theology at least, but no, he speaks only five words. He doesn't actually tell the Ninevites what judgment is coming. He doesn't actually tell them what they need to do. They seem to instinctively know that they need to repent in dust and ashes somehow or other. And he doesn't actually mention God. It's not a very good prayer. But worse than that, how ridiculous that God should actually cause them to repent. Surely they should know that actually you'll respond to effective preaching. We know from our own experience, don't we, that our friends don't come to faith unless we offer a really carefully thought through and articulated explanation of the Christian faith full of apologetic rigor. That's where we're going wrong. Apparently not. How ridiculous that God should show mercy and respond to their heartfelt cry, the Ninevites, when they hadn't said the right things. But then this is where we begin to run into some serious challenges. How ridiculous in chapter 4 that the person of God should resent the fact that the grace and love that he's experienced are extend to other people who are not like him. He acts with a special sense of privilege. How crazy is that? And look, here's the supreme irony. When he articulates his resentment to God, he says this, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Well, we actually, we don't know that because the story of Jonah didn't tell us that. When he runs away in chapter 1, we're not told why. We only find out here in chapter 4. Jonah's run away because he knows perfectly well. If I was called to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the empire, which was destroying my people and were my enemies and had trampled over my city and taken people into exile, I could think of lots of reasons for running away. I'm not up to the job. This is too frightening. They're never going to respond. It turns out that 
Jonah has a completely different reason. He knows perfectly well that God is gracious and compassionate. And in saying that, he's quoting God's words back to him. They come from Exodus. 34 verse 6, where God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. God passed before Moses and declared his name. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the God of Israel. I am the Lord. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And here's the extraordinary irony. That was the reason why Jonah was an Israelite and a prophet in the first place. The Old Testament is really clear, and God is really consistent. He has not set his love on Israel because Israel had any merit of its own. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, you are the smallest of the nations. It's not because you're a great nation, but not because you're distinctive, that I've set my love on you, but just because that's what I'm like. I'm a gracious God. I'm a God who calls people in love. That's the story of Jonah. That's the reality of God for Jonah. But it's a reality he does not want others to discover. It's the basis of his own faith. Isn't it ridiculous that he should forget this or fail to be to make the connection? Wouldn't it be crazy if we did the same? Wouldn't it be crazy if we actually saw a bit of ourselves in Jonah? Wouldn't it be crazy if we forgot that it was God's unmerited grace, which was the thing that in the first place sought us and brought us home? We're here today in church on a Sunday morning, not primarily because, well, you know, we've just grown into the habit, that's what you do, six days a week, well, five days a week shall you work or do something like that. And the sixth day of the week, you shall relax on Saturday, do your gardening and shopping. And then on the seventh day of the week, you come to church. That's just how it is. Yeah, okay, we do form those kinds of habits. And that's good. It's not just we're here, not just because of the friendships. Although, again, as God calls us into community, our friendships and our relationships are important. But how crazy would it be if we thought that those were the reasons why we're here, rather than the fact that God's grace and God's love sought us out and brought us home. Now there's a serious issue here. Nineveh were Israel's enemy. They'd done them serious harm. And all of us, as we go through life, we encounter people who've done us serious harm. And I'm not suggesting there's an easy or a trivial answer to the question of, can we imagine God's grace extending to our enemies? But that's exactly what Jesus teaches, and that's what Paul teaches. In his parable of the unforgiving steward, Jesus compares the resentments and the wrongs and the hurts that we have from other people. In comparison to the forgiveness we've received from God, it is like somebody owing us Five bucks when we've been forgiven a million dollars. That doesn't always make it easy, and it means we have to do some hard thinking and maybe some hard emotional work to make that a reality. But that is true. That is the spiritual truth 
of our situation. Are we okay that God loves his enemies? Are we okay with the idea that God loves our enemies? That God loves those who have hurt and harmed us. Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 like this, that while we were God's enemies, that's when Christ died for us. He's turned us from enemies to friends. That is what his grace is like, and that is what he does, because he's a Lord who is gracious and compassionate. But that leads to a practical issue and a practical challenge for us too. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if we organized the way we meet on a Sunday and the way we meet during the week in our small groups in such a way as to exclude newcomers or make them feel out of place or unwelcome? Because, of course, each one of us was new once. Each one of us, I guarantee, had a day which was the first time we walked through those glass doors. Maybe we can remember the time when we first walked into a church service and it all felt a bit mysterious and odd and unexplained and we didn't know when to stand up and sit down, which books or bits of paper to shuffle in those days when we had books and bits of paper. Of course we don't. Which bits of the screen to look at? Do you say the stuff that's in yellow or do you say the stuff that's in white? What's, what is everyone around me doing? Wouldn't it be crazy if we didn't make others feel as welcome as we were made? Because otherwise, perhaps we wouldn't have stuck. Why is it that so many Christians, when they first come to faith, they come to church through an open door and then they close the door behind them? Because in reality, that's what many of us have done. Isn't that crazy? When we were in pool, we um, put on an extra service on a Sunday afternoon so that some of the older members of the congregation could come and we had a service and we had an afternoon tea with lovely cucumber sandwiches and the idea of doing that was so that they could invite their friends so they could come as well and discover something of what they discovered after about three or four months we found that no new people came so we then talked to them and said well, why is that they said oh well all our friends are already here we don't have any friends outside the church well if that had been like for us we'd have never found faith ourselves we may feel as though we're a small minority and shrinking at that, but it's still the case that two-thirds of the population of the UK, 67%, know a Christian. But in a recent survey of Anglicans, only 17% of Anglicans said they'd be willing to invite a friend to church. Isn't it strange? Isn't it crazy how we come in and close the door after us? And lastly... How crazy, how ridiculous that Jonah gets upset about this blooming plant, a leafy plant. I don't know what it was, a gourd or something. It grows up overnight, it dies overnight, and Jonah is upset about it. Are you reason to be angry, says God? I've reason enough to die. Well, I actually do know what it's like, some of you may as well, to have a plant grow up beautifully. I planted some beautiful Lobelia Queen Victoria last year, and it was magnificent. It had a lovely red flower on the top, and I went out the next day, and it had gone. And some slug had chumped through. Lobelia is a bit like a slug magnet. Now, I was a bit upset, but I can't say I was angry enough to die. But here's the challenge. Jonah is obsessed with the trivial He's worried about a plant. He's not worried 
about this great big city. We live in a culture which is obsessed with the trivial. I found a wonderful experience um, last autumn, and, I, and in the autumn I go to Sheffield, and I go and teach a, a course on biblical theology on Mondays, so I get the train from Beeston to Sheffield, change at Nottingham, then I get a taxi. In the mornings, the taxi drivers are always Muslims. And you can imagine what the conversation goes. Hello, what are you here for? Oh, I'm here to teach theology. I'm ordained. Are you? And then we launch into a conversation about the nature of God and reality, whether we should read the gospel, is the, is the Quran reliable, and all those sorts of things. It's very interesting. On the way back in the afternoon, the taxi driver is always a white native Sheffield man. And is always a man, actually. What do you think the conversation turns to? Does it turn to the meaning of life and the existence of God? Oh no, it's always confined to the nature of the weather and the state of the traffic around Sheffield. Now you've got all these students in term time. We are addicted to talking at the level of the trivial. I wonder what it would be like if we, in our everyday conversation, found it possible to actually talk about the things that really matter. Well, this ridiculous story, a ridiculous prophet who does ridiculous things. He's ridiculous in thinking that the grace of God that's come to him doesn't urgently need to be shared with those around. It's ridiculous that he seems to want to close the door to God's grace once he's walked in through it. And it's ridiculous that he's obsessed with the trivial. Thank you, Jonah, for offering us a mirror to see the ways that we are sometimes a bit ridiculous. Let's pray. And just in the quiet, let's pause for a moment and reflect on Jonah's ironic confession. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Father, we've confessed that we believe and trust in you, the creator of the world. We believe and trust in your son, Jesus, who has redeemed and forgiven us. We believe and trust in your spirit who animates us and through us makes your love known. Father, in your grace, will you save us from being ridiculous like Jonah? Will you fill our hearts with gratitude? And will you give us grace to show and to share your love to those around us in this coming week? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.